Well, good morning. I'm so glad to see you today. Has anybody drunk coffee today? Okay, well, the restrooms are located right back there, so I just want to make sure you knew that. But I'm glad that you're here. We're glad to have you. I want to welcome those worshiping with us in li uh, online today, and glad you could participate. Look at somebody and show them your teeth. Go ahead and do that. Just you can sit down. You don't have to stand up. But that would be a positive thing, wouldn't it? I don't know. I've never seen your teeth, but hey, most of the time, that's a pretty good sign. They smiled at me, and, and so we're happy to see everybody here today. Now, every week we have first-time guests who are here, and so I've been doing this series on guardrails, so I'm going to do a quick summary just of the basic theme of this. If you've heard this before, just be patient. We'll get to it, okay? But I want to help you understand. Uh, if several years ago, Laura, my wife, and I went out to uh, Colorado Springs, and we were at a retreat out there, and we we looked at Pikes Peak the whole time we were there. Now, we grew up in Tennessee. We'd been to mountains before, but not like this. I mean, it's over 14,000 feet up to the top of Pikes Peak. And so after being there all week, we decided to drive up and see Pikes Peak. How many of you have been to Pikes Peak? How many of you have not been to Pikes Peak? How many of you really don't care either way? <laughs> Just need to know your audience. Okay. So anyway, when you drive up there, something happens I wasn't prepared for. I didn't realize. I never thought about it before. As we got up close to the top, we went beyond what's called the timberline. Okay? So what happens is you drive up and you have this artificial barrier, this illusion of safety because you've got trees on the side of the road. So you're thinking, well, if I did, you know, have an accident, drive off, but the trees would be there to stop me, right? I don't know if they would or not, but they're there. It makes you feel good. And then you go above the timberline and there's no trees up there. It's just like the moon. It's just rocks and, and there's no vegetation. It can't grow up there. It's not enough oxygen. And so you drive along and you realize, you know, could drive off the edge of this thing, and, and they don't have a lot of guardrails out there. They just got a road, and you drive up there. And so the whole concept is about guardrails. You know, guardrails are a system designed to keep vehicles from straying into dangerous areas or off-limits areas. And guardrails, you usually see them three places. You see them on bridges, so you don't drop off, drive off of that. You see them in medians, so that you don't hit oncoming traffic and it doesn't hit you. And you see them in curves because sometimes those curves can sneak up on you and you don't really realize you're, it's unexpected. It's a sharper turn than you realize it was going to be. Well, in the Bible, it talks about guardrails. How many of you know guardrails was in the Bible? They, they have that in there. It's not in there. Okay, but it does talk about, <laughs> I just want to make sure you're paying attention. It does talk about standards and boundaries that God gives us to live by. Now, guardrails don't have to just be limited to highways. What we've been talking about is guardrails in our lives today that we can follow. You know, when there is no guardrail, you can get closer to the edge, but you don't want to do that because there's not a guardrail over there. And nobody argues about the logic of guardrails, do they? We all know the value of them. So I want to share a few things about them with you. First of all, guardrails direct and protect us. They show us which way to go and they keep us from going into danger. Guardrails are always placed in a safety zone. You're on this side of the safety zone or this side of the guardrail. You don't want to get on the other side of the guardrail. There's a reason the guardrail's there because it's a danger zone. And so then the third thing is guardrails are designed to minimize damage. If you've ever hit a guardrail, messed your car up, but it would 
mess it up a lot more if you went over the side of the cliff and the guardrail wasn't there, right? And so when we talk about guardrails, what are the guardrails in your life and in my life that we need to have, that we need to put into practice? Well, think about it. Maybe they're financial guardrails. You know, as Christians, we have stewardship principles that we're supposed to follow. God gives us guidelines to go by. Or what about our moral principles that we follow and beliefs based on what God's Word teaches us? What about the relational and professional guardrails so that we stay in our lane, keep things the way they're supposed to be? You know, future regrets can be avoided if we implement those guardrails now. So I don't implement those guardrails for you. I just have to choose to do them for myself. And so it may be financially, it may be professionally, it may be personally, it may be with my friends, it may be with my neighbors, my relationship, it could be in my marriage. I need to have guardrails so that I'm protected. And when I drift toward the edge, it should light up my conscience. It should make my spirit take note and, and stand up and say, okay, now watch out. This is a dangerous area here. Look out what you're doing before you hurt someone else and yourself. Now, our culture is not big on guardrails because culture doesn't like rules. Culture says, I do what I want to do. I'm in charge. It's my choice. It's my decision. It's my uh, uh, thought that I'm going to follow, that I'm going to do what I want to do. And so I don't want somebody telling me what to do, and they don't encourage it. Okay, it's the same kind of culture that won't celebrate or encourage guardrails, and, and especially in the topic we're going to talk about today, and yet we need them. Last week we talked about friends and associates, and this week we're going to talk about guardrails in our moral lives, in our morality. We're talking about guarding your marriage, and there's a word for that. It's called fidelity. And fidelity comes from a Latin word, which means faithful or loyal. When you're married to someone, then you're promising to be faithful and loyal to that person. How do you protect yourself and your relationship with that person that you love? Well, you've got to have those guardrails, and you've got to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit to help you to just have an alarm that goes off when you realize, hey, this is out of bounds. This is dangerous. I need to remove myself from this situation. Now, here's what culture does to us. It does a great job of baiting us toward the edge because there's always temptation. Come over here, do this. This is something you'll enjoy. And, and culture and the world make it look really great, right? And so they say, well, just try it. You'll like it. But then they're the same people who chastise us if we step over certain lines and we mess up. So why do we listen to those people? Why do we let other people influence us if they're just going to turn around and, and jump all over us for doing the thing they tried to get us to do in the first place? We don't have to do that. You know, I learned early on in the ministry, we would go to preacher's meetings. And after preacher's meetings, you know what we would go do together as preachers? Do you know what we would go do? Pool hall. Yeah, that's where we went, the pool hall. No. No, we would go eat. Yes, we would get out about lunchtime. They would design it that way, and we would all go eat. And here's what preachers would say to one another. Where are we going to go eat? Because we were young, we had time, we were friends, we wanted to hang out together, right? And so we would say, where do you want to go eat? Well, I learned something pretty early on uh, when, when that happened, and here's what I started doing. I started thinking to myself, when I've got a preacher's meeting, I'm going to decide where I want to go eat before I go to the meeting. 
And then when people say to me, where are we going to go eat? I say, we're going to go here. That's what everybody wants to do. They want to go here. And they would all go, okay. <laughs> That's the truth. You can influence people. You, can lead. you don't have to be led by other people to do what they say. You can lead other people. And so we're part of the problem in life a lot of times because we entertain ourselves with media and movies and music that glorify affairs, and it's about sex outside of marriage. And what happens? A friend of ours has an affair, and we're mortified. I can't believe your wife. I can't believe your husband would do that. Now, if we could get this one thing right about morality, then and we would have less poverty, we would have fewer unwanted pregnancies, we would have less domestic violence, we would have fewer kids in foster care, we would have fewer children growing up without a mom or dad in their home. If we had established guardrails in our lives, then we would do the right thing. And if you were God and you wanted to speak to this issue and you wanted to use other people to speak to this issue, what would you say? Well, just tell them to go for it. Do whatever they want to. Have a good time. Wait until you're ready. Drink responsibly and have sex responsibly. We've talked about that in this series. But the Apostle Paul, 2,000 years ago, was planting churches around the Mediterranean basin, and he writes to the church at Corinth. Now, he's been to Corinth before, okay? So he's traveled there. He's taught there, and now he's writing back, and he's reminding them what he taught them and what he said when he was there. And here's what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. He's, he's putting it out there for them to understand that this is something they need to pay attention to. This is a guardrail. This is a danger zone. And what he's saying is what every husband wants his wife to do, what every wife wants her husband to do, what every big brother wants his daughter or his younger sister to do, and whatever somebody who loves another person wants them to do. When it comes to sexuality, be careful. Flee. Don't stick around. We live in a culture where sometimes we are complicit, setting ourselves up not to flee, but to flirt. And then we step off the edge and we feel shame because of it. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament. He was a man after God's own heart like David. He, God didn't say that about him, but that's the kind of person he was because he was faithful to God. And so when Potiphar's wife wanted to have a relationship with him that was unhealthy and ungodly, he would not do that. And so he ran out of the house. In fact, she pulled his coat off of him as he was leaving. He got in trouble not for what he did, but because of what she said he did. But he still did the right thing. He did not flirt. He fled. Now, you know, he could have said to her when she said, I, I, want, I want to go to bed with you. He could have said to her, well, you know what? Let's talk about that. Let's talk, because we've got something in common. I mean, you love me and I love me. Let's talk about me, right? <laughs> And, and he could have explored that, and he could have said, what would it be like, and what is it about me you like? Let's talk about that, okay? But he didn't do that. He just said, nope, can't do that. How could I do that? God won't let me do that. Can't do that. You're married. You know, my boss, he's been so good. I'm not, it's not going to happen, okay? And he left. He was opposed to it. Now, Christians aren't against sex. Look at the person next to you and say, Christians aren't against sex. Go ahead and tell them that. Yeah. 
because some of y'all were thinking about leaving. I can tell. I can just look. I can just look around the room, and I see that gleam in your eye, and I know. If, I don't know where this is going. I'm not sure I want to stick around here. But here's what I want to tell you. God has given us an extraordinary gift, but with it, he gives us some guidelines to follow. And this is what it says in Scripture, all other sins. They, they designate this. We're going to look at it further in just a minute. But I want you to just catch that little phrase right there, all other sins, because this is different than other sins in so many ways. Paul immediately puts sexual um, or, or sexual sin in a category all its own, and it can be uniquely damaging. And so, you know, it's possible to recover from a financial mistake or an academic mistake, but with a sexual sin, it can be even harder. Can you be forgiven? Absolutely. Can you fully escape the consequences? Never. Because here's what God says. He says, you can be forgiven. All you have to do is repent. But there are still consequences to your decisions. There are consequences to what you do. And even though you're forgiven, you may have to follow up and, and be accountable to those consequences because the damage is done. It can be generational damage. It can undermine your future intimacy, and it can impact your future relationships. Sexual sin can make you, now listen, it can make you a liar and a secret keeper for the rest of your life. Did you know that? Because here's what happens. You, you see a brokenhearted person because early on, they got married, and they stood at the altar, and they told their spouse-to-be that they loved them. And they talked about their life and what they had done and, and what had been involved in their lives, but they didn't tell everything. They didn't come clean, okay? And it bugged them. And so for the rest of their lives together, they have to lie about it, and they have to keep it a secret because they wouldn't be honest about it to begin with. Broken-hearted people who don't know what to do now to change things. So Paul says, look, this is not unforgivable. This is nothing to do with God accepting you or loving you. He's going to do that. I'm just telling you that the consequences of sin in this particular area are different than every other area in life. And here's what he says. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body. But whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Now, what does sexual sin even mean? Well, in the New Testament, sin is always defined by hurting someone, stealing from someone, dishonoring someone. Uh, and if I put myself before somebody else to their detriment, that's sin. In the New Testament, any time a person takes another person, takes from another person, defrauds another person, dishonors another person, steals from another person, hurts another person, that's considered sin, and here's why. Because every person you ever have the potential to hurt is loved by God. Every person is loved by God. And when you look at things that way, then you realize I've got to respect God, but I've got to respect other people too, because this is God's child. If you've got more than one child, what do you want for your children? You want your children to get along with each other. 
You want your children to love each other for life. Even when you're dead and gone, you want your children to be close to one another. You want them to have that kind of relationship where they admire and respect and appreciate each other. And God wants his children to look at one another the same way. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. When he looks at us, what he wants us to see is our love for others, just like he has love for his other children. Now listen, you can worship all day long, but if you mistreat one of God's children, he's going to take issue with that, and you're going to hear about it. Anytime you steal, anytime you hurt, anytime you take from another person, anytime you offend your heavenly father because he loves other people, if you offend him, if you've offended another person, you've hurt another person, you've stolen from another person, you've done the same thing to God. The Christian standard for living is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? You know that, right? I'm glad to hear that. I was beginning to worry about this group. It seemed a little slower than the first service. But I want to make sure that you know. But what about the platinum rule? Are you familiar with the platinum rule? Do you know about that? Well, let me tell you about it. I'm just going to share it with you, okay? The platinum rule says this. I am to treat you the way God through Christ has treated me. Well, now, wait a minute. He's upped his game now. I don't have to just get along with other folks, but I need to treat other people the way God treats other people. Man, that's a high standard, isn't it? And when you take this extraordinary gift, this one-of-a-kind covenant relationship with one other person, and you divvy it up amongst a bunch of other people, you not only hurt those people, but you hurt yourself as well. When you take from someone something intended for someone else, that is sexual sin. It has nothing to do with God being against sex. It has everything to do with how much God loves you and how much God loves the person beside you. Look around the room today. God not only loves you, but he loves these other folks who are here too. He loves them because they're his children as well. The consequences of sexual sin are different, and God loves you too much not to speak on this issue. So he's going to make sure you know about it. Whoever sins sexually actually sins against their own body. When you steal from another person, when you hurt another person, you betray yourself and you undermine your own potential for future intimacy. And then Paul goes on and he says this, do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? Now, I want you to catch that first phrase. Do you not know? See, what he's doing is he's teaching them something they don't know. Don't you realize? Do, don't you know? And, and they don't. They go, no, I didn't know that. Nobody's ever taught me that before. So he's setting them up to pay attention. He wants them to hear. Do you not know? And then he's going to tell them what they need to know, okay? And he, and he talks about it. Do you not know? You are 
a temple. Now, the temple was the place that represented God's presence. You would go to the temple because God was there. That was the special place. You know, inside, they would have the Holy of Holies, and only the high priest could go back there. And it was representative of the presence of God. And so that's the temple of God. What is the temple? Well, the temple is sacred to the people of God because it's where he dwells. And because the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, you the Spirit of God God dwells inside of you. He sees you as sacred too. And your body is a temple of God. You are fine-tuned to a relationship with God and with others, okay? You were designed for intimacy with one other person. And God's Spirit resides in you because the value of a container is determined by what it contains, Okay, now let's say that you stole my wallet because some of you have been thinking about that for some time. I can tell just by looking at you what kind of people you are, and I know. And if you stole my wallet, but you said to me, I'm going to steal your wallet, but I'm going to give you everything inside your wallet. I'm just going to take your wallet. I would say, knock yourself out. I need a new wallet anyway, right? Because it's not the wallet that's valuable. It's what's inside the wallet that's valuable. In my case, there's not much in there, okay? I got a picture maybe of my wife and kids. Most of that's on my phone. There's a few things. I need a driver's license, some insurance card, stuff like that. Occasionally a credit card maybe. But you know what? What's inside of it is more valuable than what it holds, what holds it, okay? Well, your heavenly father says that you and I contain the image of God inside of us. So it's that image of God that is valuable. He continues and he says, you are not your own. We live in a world where people say, it's my decision, my choice. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to make the rules. And God says, no, that's not true. That's not what the Bible says. He says, you are not your own. Look at the person next to you and point your finger and say, you are not your own. You're not. You're not. You are owned by your heavenly Father if you've given your life to Him. In fact, the Scripture says this, you were bought with a price. Jesus died for you so that you could live. God gave the most precious thing he had, his son, so that he would pay for our sins so that we could live eternally with him and we could be blessed by him and we could be his, okay? And the value of, of something is determined by what it will bring in the market. Now, listen, when you get to the pearly gates, okay, and you're there for judgment, the, and God says, okay, let me talk to you, and you look at God and you say, you know what? I just want to make my own decisions. I just want to do what I want to do. I don't really care what you think. I'm not interested in you. He says, okay, you do that. Good luck. Goodbye, right? Now, would you rather have him say that, or would you have him come out and look at you and go, come on, you're mine. I know you. I bought you with a price. You're mine. You belong to me. I want him going, yeah, that's my boy. I'm on him, right? We, you know, we don't want to make the rules then, do we? We're not interested then. We're just interested in God loving us and accepting us. Well, you know what? It goes both ways. And so we have to surrender our lives to him to have that relationship with him. Now, a value of something is determined by what it would bring. If you're in real estate, what happens is you look at a house, right? 
and you see what the value is, and you have comparables, comp, comps that you look at, and you say, well, based on today's market, this is how much this house costs. And you look at the cost of that house, and you say, I don't like that price. It's too high. And you look at the history of how much that house sold for, and you go back 20 years, and you see it sold for a lot less 20 years ago, and you say, that's the price I want to pay for that house. And the real estate agent says, good, welcome, welcome to La La Land, okay? Uh, I hope you like it. You can dream about it, but you're never going to have it because that's, that's not what it brings in the market today. The value of the house is determined by the market around us today. A lot of those things play. Sometimes it goes up, sometimes it comes down, but you have to know what the value of the market is. And it's determined by what it will bring. Well, God sent his son to die for you. That's how valuable you are. Your, your market price is very valuable to God. And in 1 Corinthians, he says, therefore, honor God with your bodies. Because if you belong to God and your body is a temple of God, then you want to honor God with your body and what you do. Honor God with your bodies and the bodies around you because they belong to God too, because they are valuable to our Heavenly Father. Every person bears the image of God and deserves our utmost respect, not because of their behavior, but because they bear the image of God. So if you're listening to this thinking to yourself, I didn't know that. That's why Paul says, did you not know? because he wants them to understand that, and he explains that to them. What if we saw every other person the way God does? Wouldn't that be a blessing? But we have to set up guardrails now so that we flee for, from immorality if it comes toward us in the future. Now I want to make some suggestions about guardrails. Are you ready? The first one is talk about it. Talk about your guardrails. If you're married, if you're engaged, if you're dating, talk about, well, what are our rules? Well, what are we going to do? How are we going to live? You know, when, when you were dating somebody, did you ever talk to them? It's just a miracle y'all got together, isn't it? When you were dating somebody, even the quietest person suddenly just just goes to town talking to other people, right? You know, you call people up, you spend time with them, you ask them all kinds of questions. You just can't talk to them enough, right? And so, you know, back in my day, let me tell you how bad it was. That's why I'm scarred. That's why I'm like I am today, because I grew up back in the 60s and 70s. Enough said right there, right? So if you wanted to have a date, you had to make a phone call. There was a thing called a telephone. And you couldn't put it in your pocket. It was in the house, and it was always in the room that everybody else sat, okay? And the TV was usually on when you were in there. And that's what you had to use to call somebody to ask them out. And you didn't, you couldn't just call that girl that you wanted to take out. You just called their house. And they didn't know who was calling, and you didn't know who you were getting. And, you know, it was just my fortune to always get one of their parents, you know? Which is just shoot me, okay? Her, the father answers the phone, and I'm going, biddy, 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 right? And then he goes, I don't know who it is, and he gives it to his wife because he can't make heads or tails out of what I'm saying. And she says, Yes, and uh, yeah, who are you if you want to talk to my daughter? Oh, yeah, well, I'm okay, well, I know who you are. You're Joe Jr., and I know your parents. Okay, it'll be all right. You can talk. Okay, so then you get, get her on the phone, right? And you finally get up the nerve to ask her out. And of course, her parents are sitting right there listening to the conversation conversation and your family, all of your family, because I'm the oldest of four kids and my brother and both my sisters were always right there. 
watching me, everything I did. And so everybody's waiting to see how it goes. And, and then I ask her, and she says, no. Okay. So, you know, you say, well, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> if I ever have a date, she's just going to come to the house and find me. That's the way it's going to happen. It's just going to happen by osmosis because I'm not calling anybody again. Well, what happens is that you go through that, but you got to talk to each other. See, you got to set up those boundaries, and you have to know what appropriate behavior is. The second thing is avoid traveling or eating alone with members of the opposite sex or problematic people. You can tell I've been in the ministry a long time because I can spot a problematic people a long way off, okay? And the point is, if you're in a committed relationship, you need to establish guardrails in that relationship. Number three, don't keep it a secret. You know, whenever you find yourself hesitant to be honest in your relationship about another person, that's a red flag. And so that's somebody, you need to talk about that. You need to talk to the person that you're, you love and that you're a significant other you're, you're, that you're dating or you're um, married to. And you need to say, let's talk about this, and we need to be aware of it and pray about it. And then fourth, don't counsel members of the opposite sex or potentially problematic people. You see, once again, I know these people, so I stay away from them. I'm not really a counselor. I don't do a lot of counseling. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that uh, I refer people to counseling, you know, and I want them to get help, but I'm not a counselor. You go to a counselor, what do you do? You pay a lot of money, right? And that person helps you discover your issues. And then they, if you discover them, then you can deal with them, right? But my approach to counseling has always been kind of the whole approach of share in the movie Moonstruck with Nicolas Cage. If you're not familiar with this movie, <laughs> go back and watch it sometime. He looks at her and says, I love you, Loretta. And she slaps him and says, snap out of it, okay? That's pretty much my approach. And when you go to a counselor, you pay big bucks. When you come to me, I'm free. And you get what you pay for, okay? So I'm just saying. All right, then fifth, when you feel in your heart and your desire drifting toward a specific person, you need to tell somebody. If you feel like I'm attracted to that person, I kind of like that person, you know, beyond what I should, that's a boundary, I'm concerned about that, then you need to share that with the person that is your significant other. Because what happens a lot of times when you talk about it, it kind of diffuses it and it goes away. Now, the objection is that sometimes these suggestions can limit a woman's professional opportunities. A woman worked for a profit company. She went to work for a nonprofit company. She never got invited to lunch. She never got invited to meetings. She was just kind of left out of the loop. Well, that's not really what I'm talking about. Here we have a staff, and we have men and women on the staff, and so we go to a staff meeting together, and so sometimes we'll say, you want to go to lunch. And, and so normally what happens is that we ask people to raise their hand or tell us, yes, I want to go to lunch. If we have enough people, then we all go to lunch together. If there's just one guy and one girl, then they say, okay, I'll do something else because we just don't do that, right? And normally what happens, if you want to get a big group of the staff to go to lunch together, just tell them I'm paying for it. That'll, that'll do it, right? That Joe's paying. Okay, we're going. We're there. You know, I didn't have any money. Now that I know that the big guy's going to pay, I'm good to go with that, all right? 
And so she didn't get invited to things. Well, that's never what that was intended to be. And so we don't need to let that be a barrier to people being in the loop, okay? The question that we're trying to answer for ourselves is, what's the wisest thing I can do to protect my fidelity? That's really what we're going for. And the point of the guardrail is to light up our conscience and to prick our spirits so that before we hurt ourselves and other people, we stop. What in our culture, in our culture today, what equips us and supports us when it comes to remaining faithful? Where are you going to go to hear people talk about this? Probably church is the only place people are going to talk about this because in the world today, folks are going in the other direction. Now, you know what I found out when I moved here? When I moved here, they taught me two things. They said, when you pull up to the traffic light and it turns green, count to three before you proceed because there are people who come to Florida and cross the state line and when they do they leave their brains behind they come down and they just shut off all the rules and they're on vacation and they're looking around and they're seeing all the stuff they say, oh look they've got one of those I didn't know that and all of a sudden they just go well the rules don't apply to me and what can happen is and it's not just the people from out of town sometimes it can be the local folks too but they'll just knock you into the middle of next week if you're not careful okay second thing I learned when I came here was that this area Panama City Panama City Beach it's a big area for people having affairs it's a problem that people are unfaithful here. It's a high divorce rate here in this place. It's seen by a lot of people as a playground. And so what happens is that, that they don't have the guardrails. They don't have the boundaries. They, they don't have the biblical background. They don't really understand how God works. And they find themselves falling into those situations that they don't need to be in. But if you establish guardrails now, you'll look back sometime in the future and you'll be grateful that you did because you made the right choice. So if you've got to decide, am I going to flirt or am I going to flee? If I flee, it honors God. It honors the person I love. It honors uh, the people that are in my family, my children, my grandchildren, others. And, and if I'm going to flee, though, I've got to set up the guardrails now. Now, set some guardrails up that will just prick your conscience, your spirit, so that you know I'm about to leave the safety zone. I don't need to go there. And then you'll be applauded by your Heavenly Father. So think about it. Talk about it and do something about it. You'll be glad you did. And those guardrails will cause you to say later on, you know, I'm forever yours faithfully and mean it and practice it. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for everything you teach us in your word, and it has purpose. There's reasons that you set things up the way that you have. And, Lord, there are a lot of people in the world today who've really suffered a lot because they didn't realize that they were going against you. They didn't, they didn't set up boundaries in advance. And all of a sudden, they fell into a hole that they didn't mean to get into. And, and they need to be delivered from it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be proactive. But Lord, I pray that, that if we've failed, if we've choked, if we've messed up, that we won't just quit and give up, but we'll realize that you love us anyway, and you will help us. There are going to be consequences, but you can deliver us and forgive us. And so we're so grateful for that. And we pray that we would be obedient to you and what you teach, and that we wouldn't let the world try to tell us what to believe and follow their example. We pray in Jesus' name, and all God's children said.